0: In the United States, it's, it's becoming very hard, even for law enforcement, to use facial recognition technology because of, of new privacy regulations. So very different way democratic versus authoritarian societies are looking at AI applications.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you are hear from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Imagine how frustrating it would be to spend your entire career doing pioneering work in your field, only to have myths, misconceptions and unfounded fears dominate the public conversation around your area of expertise. My guest today knows a little bit about that. Steve Swartz is a pioneer and his area of expertise is artificial intelligence. He spent more than 30 years on the leading edge of AI technology. After doing groundbreaking research as part of the Yale University Artificial Intelligence Lab. He founded and co-founded several AI companies and is considered one of the most influential thinkers in the space. But with his new book, Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity, Steve set out to play the role of Mythbuster to his own life's work. He's here to tell you that the robots are not coming for your job, that the future will likely be more boring than Blade Runner and Terminator would have you think and that AI exists to improve our lives, not in them. Steve got into artificial intelligence almost by accident. He was born and raised in New Bedford, Massachusetts, not far from Cape Cod. Though he was bright and extremely gifted in mathematics, he didn't excel in school mainly because of a lack of interest.
0: So I didn't do much homework. (laughs) Actually, after two years of high school, I got sent to a private school because I had made a bet with one of the kids on the bus that I could go a whole year without taking any books home.
1: How did that go? I I mean, I don't think I could have ever done that.
0: (laughs) I didn't get great grades, but I did manage to win the bet.
1: And that was high school?
0: That was in high school, yeah. And ended up going to college in Florida at a uh, school for people with high board scores and lousy grades. And it was uh, one of those schools that didn't have any grades. So I did very well there.
1: So then you go to college. And what did you enroll at? And what was your degree or, or were you declared when you started college? So I was really interested in psychology.
0: And in particular, in cognitive psychology, the science of how people think. I managed to write two peer-reviewed papers while I was in college and, and then went to graduate school for cognitive psychology. And that's where I really got into AI. I was very fortunate to work with some professors who had done some amazing things. I worked with Bert Green, who wrote one of the very first artificial intelligence programs in 1960. He, he wrote a program that would answer questions about the 1959 baseball season. You know, how many times did the Red Sox beat the Yankees in July? That, those, those kinds of questions. So, you know, he'd have to enter them through these punch cards on an IBM computer, but they were natural language questions. And he wrote a program that, that could answer them. And that was way ahead of its time. And I also spent a summer at Yale in an AI program where I worked with Roger Shank, who was one of the pioneers in natural language processing. And that had a big influence on me also. And obviously, since I moved to Yale to work with Roger.
1: Yeah, let's talk about Roger a little more, because I did some digging on him. An interesting person. But what was most inspiring about working with him?
0: Roger ran a lab with about, I'm going to say, 25 graduate students and lots of undergraduates. And it was one of the most exciting places I've ever, ever worked or been around. Every single person in that lab was working on something really interesting. Jerry DeYoung was building a program that could read the UPI Newswire and write summaries of news stories. I mean, this was back in 1979, I think. Jim Meehan was writing programs that would create short stories. You know, you you go on and on. Every single person in the lab was doing something really, really exciting. It was a very vibrant place. And that's what I wanted to do.
1: So that's a good point to talk about, you know, the defining intelligence, you know, first intelligence, and then what is artificial intelligence? And there are two types that you describe in your book. Can we break it down? Just give us a little bit of a tutorial of the kind of AI 101.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: There are two different types of AI
0: that I talked about in my book. Artificial general intelligence is the AI that's trying to build into computers really advanced abilities like you see in science fiction movies, you know, like C-3PO in in Star Wars or uh, HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where you have computers that can carry on real conversations, Not like the chatbots, which are really you know keying off of words and you know just kind of parroting back answers. But I mean, really understand what people are saying, have real conversations with them, give them good information, and that's the kind of AI that people were trying to build. I'm going to say from about 1950 to 1990, and during those 40 years, AI went through two big hype cycles. So AI was very popular. In the '60s, and then it went into a period of big decline when people realized that it's not going to be so easy to build these intelligent, really intelligent computers. Then it, it became really popular again in the late '70s and early '80s. It was just as popular as it is now on the front pages of Time Magazine, Business Week, all the all the major press. Every software product had to say based on AI or AI is embedded. And then again. Towards the end of the 1980s, AI went into a decline because it became clear that we just weren't going to get there. We weren't even building anything useful with AI. One professor at the University of California at Berkeley said in 1985, his intro to AI class was 500 students. 1990, it was 25 students. So it went through a big decline. And then it started to pick back up again to where we are now. But this time it was a very different kind of AI. It was narrow AI, where people are trying to get computers not to be generally intelligent, hence the general and the AGI, artificial general intelligence term, but rather to be good at one small, narrowly defined task, recognizing. Whether an email is spam or not, as an example, looking at an image and determining if it's a cat or a dog, and over the years, you know those narrow tasks have evolved into some pretty impressive capabilities. So, so today you can take your smartphone out, take a picture of somebody, or take a picture of a group of people, and it, the smartphone will automatically put in the names of the people in the photo. Very impressive technology, but it's artificial intelligence that's trained to do one very narrow task which is name the people in the photos you can't get that same ai program to distinguish between a dog and a cat it can't understand language it can't really do anything else any of the other things that that people do so that's narrow ai and that's that's the predominant form of of ai today but narrow ai has just produced some amazing breakthroughs i mean we talked about photo recognition, machine translation, Google Translate. You know, I can go to a another country where I don't speak any of the language, and I can talk to a cab driver because of Google Translate. Speech recognition, lots and lots of breakthroughs in medicine. There are, you know, probably a hundred different areas of medicine where AI is making making contributions, and almost every field where you have these very narrowly defined tasks, look at images and determine if the image shows a particular type of cancer. Those kinds of very narrow tasks. Very, very useful, very important, but very narrow.
1: Steve's mentor, Roger Shank, would invite leading academics to visit and present to their researchers in his lab every week. Steve's role was to organize the group dinners, which gave him access to some of the biggest names in AI research. And for a time, Steve believed he would follow them into academia himself. So if we go back to it's 1979 and, and the late 70s and 80s, when you're working with with Roger Schenck, you mentioned that you had in your book that, you know, you were kind of privileged to kind of lead the dinner conversations. Like if we were to eavesdrop in those dinner conversations, would you be talking about narrow AI? What would you have been talking about?
0: So primarily the topic would have been representation. Let me explain that. So we're all investigating artificial general intelligence. In fact, one of those dinner conversations was with Jeffrey Hinton, who is now considered the father of AI and leads uh, Google's, well, more or less his their scientific effort. And the predominant conversation in trying to build artificial general intelligence is how you represent knowledge in a computer. What form does it take so that the computer can use that knowledge of the world and reason on it, reason based on that knowledge. And, you know, most people, you know, thought that that's that's really the core of intelligence. In order to understand everyday language, you have to be able to access that world knowledge and reason about it. So the representation of that knowledge was a core topic. And one representational issue that I was involved with, and to a lot of people, you know, I, I talk about this and it sounds to them like yeah, that was I thought we were talking about something really cool, artificial de- general intelligence. And then I tell them about it, and they say, "Well, that sounds more like talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin." <laughs> but here was the issue that we were addressing. If I say to you, "What shape are a German Shepherd's ears?" Go ahead and answer that question.
1: They're like a tortilla chip. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and if I asked you how you did it. You'd probably say most people would say, yeah, I kind of conjured up an image of a German shepherd in my mind, and I traced up the legs to the body to the head and where the ears should be, and I kind of yeah, kind of see pointy-shaped, tortilla-shaped ears. So does that mean we have a like a photograph in our in our heads? I mean, if we shake the heads, will the photograph move? Does it mean we have something that's more conceptually analog? Where You know, the distance between the two ears is somehow more or less the same in the brain, or or maybe that distance is less than the distance between the tail and the head. Or is that representation just a set of facts about the world? And we know how to look through that set of facts, and it kind of feels to us like there's a real image in our head. So that was one of the big debates of the day. Never resolved, but one of the big debates.
1: Who else came to dinner? It was like the City Portier movie. I guess who's coming to dinner? It was like a constant evolution of, of different who's who.
0: It was. It was every Saturday and Roger declared, Roger was a foodie and he declared there were only two restaurants in the whole area that were fit for guests. One was Leon's and one was Sherman's Tavern on the Green. And in fact, I met my as a digression, I met my wife at Sherman's Tavern on the green.
1: Nice. And were those appropriate because they had private areas or just proximity to the academics?
0: No, good food.
1: <laughs> it's always a good start, right? Back in the 50s, you know, as you said, it was just all this mysterious kind of like sci-fi, Ray Bradbury type of you know visual world. But by the time AI was actually named, was artificial intelligence the name that it was given back in the 50s, it started evolving and it matured. Does the name artificial intelligence to you mean the same thing now as it did back when it was named?
0: Yeah, no, I think when it was originally named, it referred to what we would call now artificial general intelligence. And in contrast, what we do today is narrow AI.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because sometimes you know when, when we name something <laughs> and to give it a, a general category over time, it expands. But I also find fascinating about that period is that there was a little bit of fun of like this academic gene pool was predominantly in the East Coast, right? And then it started m- migrating out West, which ultimately is where McCarthy ended up at Stanford and and a lot of others. Do you think that was so, is there any a benefit to that that there is predominantly in like the Ivy League schools versus in the West Coast?
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, I think MIT and Stanford—you know, at, at really at the same time—those those were and you know still are major centers of AI innovation. You know, today maybe even more than back then, but back then it, it was also big. You know, Roger Shank was at at Stanford before he came to Yale. So, yeah, Stanford was right in the center of things right from the beginning. I'd like to say Yale. Yale was pretty big in the 70s, although its activity in AI has tailed off since then.
1: After two years in the Yale lab, Peter accepted a tenure-track position to teach at Brandeis University in Boston. His plan all along had been to follow Roger Shank into academia, but as he was packing up his house to move back to Massachusetts, he got some unexpected career advice from his mentor. To his surprise, Roger told him to turn it down and join him in a new venture he was launching called Cognitive Systems.
0: Roger came to me and he said, "You know, I'm going to start an AI company, and I want you to help me start it." We talked about it, and he said, "You know, for all these personal reasons, you know, you're very competitive. I know you really don't don't like academics. I think you'd be happier in the business world." And he was he was absolutely right about it. So I. I backed out of the Brandeis position, which is, it was very late in the game to do that. And they were pretty understandably mad at me and I felt bad about it. But as karma would have it, 30 years later, where does my oldest daughter decide to go to college? Brandeis. (laughs) So, you know, I told her who not to take courses from.
1: (laughs) paved the way. So let's talk about the company. Like what was the vision? when you started there and, and what did you actually, what was your goal in terms of what you are going to bring to market?
0: So the idea was to build useful products with AI technology. So the first product we built was a product that would help oil company analysts gain access to the data in their systems about their oil wells. So, you know, they'd be able to log into the system and ask a question like, show me all the wells that are deeper than 5,500 feet and have, I'm going to say fracking capabilities, but I'm not, I am i don't think fracking was around back then, but those kinds of questions, and then in, in, interact with the data that way. I built a system that enabled, at that time, the large banks, especially in New York, processed money transfer telexes, where a foreign bank would say, you know, we'll just send a A telex, and it would have English words on it. You know, you know, they'd be ten sentences. I want you to transfer such and such amount of money to this account. The beneficiary is so on and so forth. And it would pull out all the relevant information and create the money transfer. And then we were working on a third system that was designed to be a financial advisor, a real AGI financial advisor. And that one proved a little uh, a little too much. But the other two systems, we were able to build useful
1: systems. And what was your exact title or role at the company?
0: I was like the senior VP of software development, I think.
1: Senior vice president. I mean, that's pretty impressive. How old were you then?
0: So that was in 1981.
1: Oh, 81. Okay, yeah. Eighty-one.
0: Yeah. So I was probably, I was 28 at that point and had just, you know, effectively just left Yale. So, I didn't know anything about the business world. I had a lot of AI experience, but no no business experience and it took it took a lot longer to ramp up on on business acumen than I ever expected it to.
1: So what was it like? so you from an academic to this corporate world, were you now able to take all your knowledge and apply it to these programs, these projects that you're working on? did that just ignite you even further?
0: Yes, but not any more than than in the academic setting. so, what i really liked was that there's a measurable way of determining how well you're doing in business you know does your product sell or doesn't it in the academic community i hate to say it, but you know a lot of times it's more of a, more of a popularity contest and i also didn't like i remember when i was at yale i got asked to review some articles for peer review journals which is you know very it's a, it's an honor to do it so remember the first one I spent, killed the whole weekend doing it, sent it in. They said, great, here's two more. I'm like, wait a second. The better I do, the more they're going to give me and the fewer weekends I'm going to have to myself. So the bottom line is the business world was a much better fit for me than academics.
1: So how many companies total to date have you founded or invested in that are related to AI?
0: I would say about four companies founded. And about eight companies invested in.
1: And what were the four that you founded?
0: So Cognitive Systems was really founded by Roger Shank. I was I really helped them with that, although I had founder stock. Intelligent Business Systems, which was kind of a sort of a spin out of Cognitive, where we brought in a former IBM executive who had been selling small business accounting systems. and we set out to build a product that would be the best small business accounting system on the market because you could talk to it in English. And we did that. And then the third AI company was the one that was the most successful for me, which was Esperant. Esperant was a way of getting information out of databases for non-technical people. And it was in an emerging field called business intelligence. And my Esperant product became recognized in the early 90s as one of the top business intelligence products that won a lot of a lot of awards. And I sold that company. And that was the first time I I really made a lot of money.
1: So let's talk about the Mythbusters in thus your book, which I, I think, you know, the title alone is is so descriptive and it's great. But you spent your whole, your career in this category. And obviously along the way you you were able to Acknowledge, you know, what was real and what wasn't real or, or what was needed or or not needed in AI. So let's talk about the inspiration of your book. Like why the book at this juncture in your career?
0: Sure. So, you know, I had kept up with some of the work I did. Some companies, I wasn't directly in AI, but I I kept up with it. And around 2010, I think it was, the IBM computer, Deep QA, Watson Deep QA, beat two Jeopardy champions at Jeopardy, which seems like an amazing achievement. I mean those those Jeopardy questions are are pretty hard for people and, and to have a computer that could, you know, seemingly understand these questions and get the right answer to the extent that they beat two Jeopardy champions was pretty amazing. And I was, you know, I was cheering the computer on the hallway. I'm a nerd. Of course I would do that. And then IBM started branding itself around the capabilities in that Watson Computer By saying, "Yeah, our Watson computers can think and reason like people and have natural conversations and so on, and I knew that was all wrong. I knew that under the hood it was it was a lot of gimmicks, I mean really, really impressive, impressive gimmicks, but really systems that were matching words against you know massive memories of documents, which isn't you know really intelligence like human intelligence. So, you know, that kind of put me off. And then Microsoft did the same thing. Microsoft announced they had built a computer that reads better than people. That really wasn't true. I mean, it was a computer that does one tiny task, maybe, maybe better than people can do it, but not a computer that understands anything that that it reads. And three or four years ago I had dinner with Roger Shank, and I was complaining to him about these misleading advertisements. And he said, you know, you should write a book about it. And that's what Gumbi started thinking about it.
1: Roger's always giving you good advice.
0: <laughs> yeah, he has.
1: So one of the things I really liked about the book was how you looked at some of the more the recent and, and contemporary things that a lot of consumers are acclimated to you know, Tesla, right? Autonomous cars and Alexa. And you also have a very practical sense on some of these things. For example, when you look at Tesla and you look at autonomous cars, you said there's six different levels of intelligence or is it really autonomous, autonomous, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting when you peg Tesla as in the second wave, I believe it is. Level two. And there's six and you have a Tesla. So I wanted to just kind of give your first kind of hand experience and what was your experience like the first time you kind of that aha experience with, you know, maybe, you know, Tesla or Alexa or any of these contemporary products?
0: Yeah. So the Tesla, well, first of all, I just, I just really like the car. It's like the first time I used an iPhone, you know, it was the human engineering around the design. Everything is where it should be. It just, it's just, to me, it's the way a car, a car should be built. But at the same time, the hype around Tesla and self-driving cars is outlandish and, you know, and to some extent dangerous. So Tesla says when you put it in autopilot mode, when it drives itself, which I do it 90% of the time, you have to be hands on the wheel and ready to take over at any, any given time because it's going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, I would estimate that if I just tried to read a book while and put my car in autopilot and tried to read a book, I'd probably have been in a hundred fatal accidents by now. Of course, that's impossible because you can only have one fatal accident. But would have crashed a, at least a hundred times. I mean, just just today I was I was driving on a back road and came to a section of the road where there was new asphalt going across the road. I'm going 50 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, it jams on its brakes. You know, it obviously thought those, those lines across the road were a car or something, and then it realized it wasn't and, and kept going. So it's far from perfect, and it's only a level two capability because you have to be ready to take over at any given time because it's going to make a lot of mistakes. The automobile industry doesn't consider level two to be autonomous driving. Autonomous driving is levels three through five where you really can read a book while the car is driving. and I think it'll be hard, if not impossible, for Tesla to get to level five, which is its goal. It'll be hard for it to get get to level three also for a lot of reasons.
1: you think there needs to be more separation between the marketing hype, I guess, and the reality of the intelligence. I've been the passenger when those those incidents happen, <laughs> and I'm like, "Holy moly! Why are we going to the other side of the road towards this large truck?" Right. So, do you do you think there needs to be less hype and more practical, um, you know, regulation or research or or policy set? I mean, what are your your thoughts on that?
0: So, I think there needs to be a lot less hype. I mean, I think it's dangerous when when Tesla calls it full self driving. And you know the, the the result has to be what happened to those, uh, you know, those those two knuckleheads who decided to get in the back seat and let t- Tesla drive them somewhere, and they 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 ended up dead. And I'm I'm surprised Tesla hasn't been you know sued for the way it markets its vehicles. But be that as it may, I, I think you know Tesla is also saying, or at least they come out and say it. They come out you know by now they said we'd be fully autonomous, you know, level three or level five, you know, you, you can read a book, you don't need to. And it's not even close. And I don't I, I just don't see how they're ever going to get to that level because, especially in consumer vehicles, everybody who drives can give you, you know, when they've been driving, crazy things that happened to them that they never expected. They didn't learn how to deal with it in driving school. And they had to use their everyday common sense to figure out how to handle it. Now There's a billion and a half drivers in the world. If everybody has just one of those experiences, and I know I've got at least, you know, I could go on and on. I probably have 20 or 30 that I could relate, and most people do. That's 1.5 billion different edge cases that that consumer Tesla vehicle needs to handle before it's really safe. Or it needs to be able to reason using everyday common sense. but There's not a single AI researcher in the world who knows how to build everyday common sense into a computer, much less a car. So how are we going to get to this fully autonomous consumer level self-driving? Now, we can do much less aggressive environments. So for example, people have successfully built autonomous vehicles that will go from point A to point B and back in a corporate park you know, five or 12 miles an hour. The reason that can be successful is because how many things can go wrong? You know, there just aren't going to be that, that many crazy edge cases. They've also had some success in self-driving taxis, where the taxis can only go on a number of very specific roads in a city, because they have those roads, you know, mapped out to the smallest centimeter detail. You know, where the fire hydrants are, where the curbs are, where the construction zones are, you know, exactly where the lanes are. So, you know, they can have some success in those scenarios also. But for a consumer vehicle to be successful, I just, I don't see how it can be done without common sense. And we don't know how to build common sense into computers.
1: Well, in flying, there's a joke, but look out your rear view window or your rear view mirror which there is none. (laughs) So you constantly have to be aware and so hyper-aware, right? Constantly. Let's talk about other categories. Are there specific categories where you think AI makes total sense? And then where is there like maybe a new frontier for other markets?
0: So the most prominent types of AI, machine learning, and in particular supervised learning, which are responsible for most of the things that we encounter in the real world where where ai provides helpful capabilities and what's interesting and you know i have a, a word document where i keep track of it all the different fields where ai is having an impact and it's almost every field you can think of you know from nonprofits to retail to government to every single field th- there's something going on in ai that's providing beneficial capabilities it's very very broad based
1: do you visualize like a, a job or skill set of the future for somebody who wants a career in AI, the next generation?
0: Yeah. So AI and more generally uh, data science, a few years ago moved to be the number one preferred job on, on Glassdoor, which which attracts job hiring and and, and job satisfaction. So data scientist has become a uh, a very important position. Almost every company of, of a certain size these days realizes that their data is a big asset. They need to analyze it, and they need data scientists who can apply AI to make sense out of their data. So there's a massive amount of employment around hiring data scientists and, to a lesser extent, machine learning engineers who can apply AI tools to a company's data uh, make sense out of them to help them predict whether which customers will buy you know how to improve their products and so forth
1: yeah since well you bring a really what I like about your book a very practical understanding and guide to you know, deconstructing you know exactly what AI is right and I think that's one of the things that personally just concerns me and I'm a big media person, but there's a lot of hype, right? And you take the hype out of that and you bring back the reality. What do you think the media gets most wrong when, in terms of using even the word AI?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it goes back to, and we started to talk about this earlier in the conversation, the words we use to describe AI. And what's happening now was that actually uh, back in 1976, at Yale University, one of the professors at Yale named uh, Drew McDermott wrote an article chastising his AI colleagues because of their use of such uh, of language that made AI sound like it does a lot more than it really does. And he called it, Artificial Intelligence Meets Natural Stupidity, which was, a, I thought, a great <laughs> title for, a, uh, for, for an article. You know, but but he was chastising his colleagues for the use of adjectives that describe their AI programs, like um, like learning and thinking and reasoning and inference and a lot of really, really high level terms that that's not really what AI was doing. There and that causes you to to overestimate what AI can really do and you know, both in a good way and a bad way. And sometimes I wish AI's evolved. I was actually teaching AI at Towson University in 1978. I didn't know I was teaching AI. I was teaching statistics. But there are two basic types of statistics called regression and classification that I was teaching that are the basis of machine learning and supervised learning today in AI. It's just that today we have more powerful computers and more powerful techniques like neural networks that enable us to do much more complex calculations. But it's the same all the same basic idea. And I think everybody, we would have all been more honest if we had called the field, especially the narrow way I feel, computational statistics. Now think about what would have happened if the field was called computational statistics today. How many magazine front covers would say computational statistics changing the world? How many people would be afraid of computational statistics the way they were afraid of ai it would have completely changed the game so just the way we've named things has led to uh, a massive amount of hype
1: i can imagine so one of the things that fascinates me is just how movies particularly like you know hollywood cinema as portrayed ai from 2001 space you know odyssey to blade runner and one of my favorite weird ones Westworld. (laughs) And then there's even more recent ones like Her and things like that. Is there a movie that you think that has gotten it right? Or is it just still no one has really taken that more precision and like looking at AI in a practical sense?
0: Yeah. So so all of these movies assume all these movies have robots that have AGI. So if I don't believe we're ever going to see AGI robots, then I guess I can't believe any of them got it right. And that's that's really where I am.
1: And then my last question was in terms of, of like the United States versus other countries in the world, are we all equally in tandem and developing artificial intelligence or or is there you know some subset short list of countries that are racing to the finish line, so to speak?
0: Well, certainly the US and China are the biggest players, but you know, AI is being developed all over the world at universities and In the United States and China, to a large extent, in private companies like like Google and Facebook and so forth, the rest of the world, more, more universities. But what's interesting is the approach is very, very different. So, for example, in China, they're using computer vision technology, facial recognition technology to link up all the surveillance cameras in the entire country to a central facial recognition system. That enables them to monitor minority groups, especially 24 by 7 in a Big Brother style, 1984 style environment. The US and Western countries are going in exactly the opposite direction. So they're taking this facial recognition technology and they're saying, we want to ban it or severely regulate it so that you can't use it in, in Europe, just passed the regulation, you can't use it in public places. In the United States, it's it's becoming very hard even for law enforcement to use facial recognition technology because of, of new privacy regulations. So very different way democratic versus authoritarian societies are looking at AI applications.
1: So do you think the government understands enough about artificial intelligence to properly regulate it? I mean, it's like they say about wall street.
0: I don't think there needs to be a lot of understanding. So, if we could build AGI, which we can't, you'd have to regulate AI as a whole, and that would require a lot of understanding. But you know, I don't think we're ever going to see AGI, and we're certainly not going to see it in our lifetimes and, or our children's lifetimes. So I don't think we need to bother to regulate AGI. What we need to regulate is narrow AI, and narrow AI needs to be regulated application by application. So we need to regulate privacy. Well, we understand privacy. We need to regulate discrimination in AI systems. And I think that's pretty well understood. It's it's nowhere near as complicated as financial terms. We need to regulate, do a better job of regulating self-driving cars. I think the government is trying to get them out so quickly that it's likely to be a dangerous experiment. But I think, you know, there are good ways of regulating self-driving cars that we need to do. And then should we be using AI that can make wrong decisions in a nuclear power plant? Well, you know, probably not, at least without strong human supervision. But I think these are all things, all issues that, you know, we can get at without the level of, of complexity that you have in the financial industry.
1: That was Steve Schwartz, an artificial intelligence expert who is now on a mission to make us understand why we shouldn't fear an AI future. During the interview, he said humans are unable to build common sense into computers. And without common sense or the ability to think or reason, we're limited in how far we can take it. So if your job requires common sense, chances are you'll still have it tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now. But if you're still wary, just listen to Steve. The impending robot takeover will remain what it is, pure science fiction. Personally, I'm not worried about AI taking over, but let us know what you think by following the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer with additional editing and music provided by Nodalab.